The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Hey there, and welcome to Big Universe. I'm Jim Lefter. I'll be your host for today. I'm a spiritual journeyman and media consultant. Joining me today is my amazing co-host, Spiritual Rebel, Sarah Bowen. Sarah's the author of Spiritual Rebel, a positively addictive guide to finding deeper perspective and higher purpose. And look for her new book, Sacred Sendoffs, an animal chaplain's advice for surviving animal loss, making life meaningful, and healing the planet. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Jim. How are you? I'm doing great. Hey, your book, uh, we need to do a whole show about your book. Can we do that? We can definitely do a whole show about the book. I'm never tired of talking about animals. So tell me, what, what's the premise of the book? What, what is the, the give me the basics of uh, an animal chaplain's advice. Sure. So the book is called Sacred Sendoffs. And as you just teed up, the subtitle is an animal chaplain's advice for surviving animal loss, making life meaningful and healing the planet. So that gives you a little tip off. You know, we have so many people who live with animals now, 67% of people in the US, 57% worldwide have an interspecies home. So that brings up all these kind of issues about what happens, you know, how can we help animals thrive while they're alive? What happens when they're sick? How do we recover and deal with it when we lose them? Uh, so a good part of the book is, you know, is that is, is looking at the human animal connection with companion animals, with dogs and cats and folks we share a home with, but also looking at, you know, we have some issues going on in the world, uh, you know, that affect animals outside of our homes. The Ukrainian, the war in Ukraine is a big thing, right? There was a, a zoo that had 4,000 animals stuck there as everybody evacuated. What oh my goodness. That? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And a bunch of vets stayed behind and, you know, a couple of them lost their lives and, you know, it's, it's messy. It's very, very tricky. And what do we do when, uh, with the eco grief we have, when we see nature being ravaged and deforestation and, you know, even, uh, right here in New York City, along one of the highways, um, they just took down a thousand trees to put a wow. burn up. And and so there's a thousand trees. So as tree lovers, you know, are sad. And then you also think about the squirrels and the birds and the all the other folks who called those home, right? Those those trees are also home. So right. I, you know, you know me, I'm a little snarky and a little irreverent. So it's very much a kind of uh, a quest, a, a book of questions questions about these things and I provide some reflections and it's really to start a conversation for how can we how can we live better with other beings like well, that's, the, that's the important Wait, sorry part. I had to flip that in <laughs> <laughs> well you know it's so important um all of that the uh the connection with our our animals both personally and in the world itself I mean I you know, I, when I grew up, I wasn't an animal, I wasn't an animal person. I just wasn't, uh, but I learned how important that connection is as I got older and had pets, you know, and not just pets, but, you know, learning about the, the animals in the world. And you, you worry about 
um, that connection and, and what we're doing to them, not only to ourselves, but to them as well. So I think it's really important that this book uh, takes us into that. It is because they're responsible also, you know, animals have so many wonderful jobs that they do out there jobs. They probably wouldn't call them jobs, right? There's my, there's my human uh, perspective, but you know, <laughs> things they do for ecosystems, we can't exist here right. on earth without what they all do. Right. Uh, you know, you look at the plight of bees right now and what more yes. human food, you know, so, so it's, it's messy. So yeah, let's do, let's do an episode and we'll tee up some of these interesting quandaries and talk about them. Well, you turn, you went to Mexico. I'm curious if uh, there were any differences in your experience in Mexico versus the U S uh, in your tour. I went to the most wonderful bookstore in Mexico uh, to do a book signing where it, it's the it's the bookstore that has the English books, uh, you know, so a lot of the the expats and the and the travelers and, and stuff end up there. But we did a uh, we did a kind of a fundraising event for local sea turtles. So I had a lot of people talking to me rather than dogs and cats. People wanted to talk turtles. So my Spanish is not great, but, you know, I did a lot of pantomiming. Right. Um, and, and it was a reminder to me, uh, you know, I speak one language, I speak English and I speak a little bit of German and a little bit of Swahili, Hebrew and Greek, right? Tiny amounts of this. And I really just am so in awe of people who can, who can speak and who can write in multiple languages. That it's is just fascinating amazing, to be able yeah. to, you know, kind of switch that thing in your mind to be like, okay, now I'm speaking this language or now I, I've never had that skill. So. I, uh, I spent a lot of time in amazement, I think, in Mexico. Wow. Wow. All right. Do you have a quote for us today? I do. So today we, we're talking a, a bit about writing. Uh, and so, you know, that's on my mind. So here's my quote today. For some of us, books are as important as almost anything else on earth. What miracle it is that out of these small, flat, rigid squares of paper unfolds world after world after world, worlds that sing to you, comfort and quiet or excite you. Books help us understand who we are and how we are to behave. They show us what community and friendship mean. They show us how to live and die. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. That's Anne Lamott. Have you ever read Anne Lamott? I haven't read much of her, but I do. I have heard of her and I've seen some quotes from her. Yes, she seems wonderful. Yeah. Bird, bird by Bird, is that one That's of her? Bird by Bird, yeah, yeah, which the subtitle on that one is Some Instructions on Writing and Life. Wow. So it seemed appropriate for today, but she, she's got so many great little nuggets. Uh, so I, I teed her up today. Who did you bring? Well, I have to say I, I cheated a little bit, but here's here we go. Creativity is not what you have. Creativity is what you are. You have no choice. The only choice to make is between crippling fear and infinite possibility. Now, see, I have three people I think wrote that. So you're going to have to tell me who it is. It's our Arthur today, Nancy Sloan Aroni. There you go. I, I thought it was either her from the book or you had that infinite possibilities in there that all of a sudden was screaming Deepak Chopra to me. 
I really that that uh, sentence or uh, that quote really stuck with me, and I thought this was a great thing to say at the beginning of the episode. I think it is this this connection um, between healing and writing. Yes, I think it's really really important. I think why it's why many of us write, even if uh, your writing is in a journal that you do at night or your writing is in poetry that you that you do or or it's love letters to your spouse or or whatever whatever it is or snarky doodles you know i think we work so much through um through healing and processing things we need to through writing absolutely absolutely are you ready to get to the interview let's do it Nancy Slotum Arany is the author of Writing from the Heart. She's been a regular contributor to National Public Radio's All Things Considered. She was recognized for excellence in teaching all three years she taught at Harvard University for Robert Coles. She's joined with physicians and writers from Columbia University's program in narrative medicine to lead workshops using her Writing from the Heart program. Her new book is Memoir as Medicine. The Healing Power of Writing Your Messy, Imperfect, Unruly, But Gorgeously Yours Life Story. Hi, Nancy. Welcome to Big Universe. Thank you, Jim. It's so wonderful to have you on. Your book is, is both powerful and, and funny. And, and uh, you know, I love the personal stories that you tell in there in various ways and um, the encouragement, the prompts for other people to follow in your footsteps. So thanks so much. Well, thank you back. So let's start with the premise of the book, uh, Memoir as Medicine. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, I do workshops called Writing from the Heart or Jumpstart Your Memoir, and everything is a personal narrative. And so the prompts really invite people to basically say, this is who I am. This is what happened to me. If I called the thing writing to heal, nobody would come. But the healing takes place because everybody is carrying secrets, wounds, shards that ripped across their hearts when they were 8, 11, Thursday. And so these stories that they get to write, a lot of people have never even, half of them have never said them out loud or written them or admitted them. And half of them didn't even remember that these things happened to them. When this stuff gets out of your body, I personally, and I actually have found out since because of narrative medicine, that there is a healing. I mean, intuitively, I knew this stuff is marinating in your liver, in your kidneys, in your heart. And to get it out on the page, to get the rage on the page, to get the sorrow on the page is healing. And so it is medicine. And it's a, it's a kind of medicine without having to have uh, a doctor. Dr. Arany is here. <laughs> so, um, you know, with memoir, you, you say that uh, you're, writing these, you're writing stories from your life basically your experiences from your life and that's different from journaling how does it differ from journaling i think there's a resolution i think you realize something in journaling you're you're saying what happened which is really important because you can go back to the journals but in a in a personal narrative there's a new realization an insight oh god i hadn't even realized of course so there's kind of an arc and there's a moment of, it's not like this wisdom is going to stay with you. You're going to be an asshole again 20 minutes later. <laughs> this moment of, uh, ah, that's why I did that. And you trace the emotional dots and you make the connection. So it's, a it's almost finished. And yet it doesn't mean you're finished. And it doesn't mean you've become a perfect being. But you have this, 
this new information about yourself. And now you can maybe work on that. And memoir is not something that needs to happen. You don't need to write it chronologically, for instance. You better not need to, because you might have noticed, well, mine isn't a memoir. I wrote a memoir. And I think it's really hard to, and, and not necessary at all to have it chronologically, but you, you don't want to confuse people. And so you do need to kind of let people know where and when and, and what's happening now. But definitely does not have to be. And I was born in New Jersey and my mother did this and my father did that. And then two days later, this is what happened. No, that's almost like not interesting. What did, uh, what made you, what inspired you to do this? I mean, you talk about this as a healing thing, but personally, on a personal level, you went through a lot of, a lot of turmoil in your life. What inspired you to write the book for folks to, to help them in this process? Well, I, in, you know, you, you read in the thing that my, I'm going to get a tissue now because now I'm going to cry. So my son, Dan, got diabetes at nine months old. At the time, he was the youngest diabetic in medical history. Hmm. And then we did everything wrong you could possibly do. Doctors, nobody knew what to do. It was like just really, really scary. And through that horrible experience where we were frozen in terror and he had all this power in our household, we did, we made mistakes, you know, oh, poor Dan, he'll never be able to do anything. I mean, he's just sick and... Uh oh, instead of three outs in baseball, we're going to give him four outs. That does no one a favor. I could write, that's the book I could write really is what to do with a chronically ill child. That, and he was angry, 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 his entire life, angry like a white hot coal. And we were terrified of him. We tiptoed around him. We tried to make him happy. And that was my job. How can I make Dan happy? So I was, my friend Jerry said, I was being held hostage. And I didn't know it, but I was still trying and trying. And, and then at 22, he got MS. Mm. Kind of convinced wow. that wow. he got MS because he probably was holding himself so rigidly that nothing flowed. That's my own not non-medical information that I, that I guess about. But he got, he got MS and deteriorated pretty quickly. Another disease that they didn't really know what to do with. So two autoimmune diseases. Uh, this one, by the time he was 25, he was in a wheelchair. His hands started to tremor. He couldn't do his own insulin shot. Hmm. And then uh, we heard about this brain surgery that you could do where they drop a chip over the thalamus and confuse the, the brain. And it worked, the 12-hour brain surgery while he was awake. Hmm. And at the end, the doctor came in the next day and said, here's a pen, Dan. Let's, let's see if you can write. And he held the pen and he wrote and we were crying and we were clapping and then now talk and his speech was kind of slower. So after a year, he just hated it. Often his speech would be and his hands would be fine or his hands would be tremoring and his speech would be fine. Mm -hmm. So he took it out after about a year. But in the meantime, I, I recognized that's early that he was gonna be my teacher. And if I could remember that he wasn't just my sick child, and that I wasn't just the mother of a sick child and that he wasn't a victim, that we could actually do this trip brilliantly. And there were moments I did remember it. So I started, I, you know, I had a, I, I had never journaled before, but I started, somebody gave me a moleskin, a little moleskin notebook, and I started writing stuff that he had said. 
And it was very, very hard. But then I read Carolyn Mace. I don't know if I'm saying her name right. M-Y-S-S. Yes, Mace, I believe. Yes. Yes. Okay, good. I'm saying it right. I'll continue to say it right. So I was reading Anatomy of the Spirit. And there was a chapter called Sacred Contracts. And at the moment that I was reading that chapter, the phone rang. It was the doctor in Denver telling me that Dan had had a stroke. He didn't have a stroke, but that's what they thought. Then he told me he had MS. In that chapter, she talks about you're in your cloud with your angel. And my angel said to me, so Nance, what do you want to learn in your next lifetime? Now, I'm married to a scientist. I'm married to a nuclear guy. And uh, it's not easy for him to go in my next lifetime. What do I want to be? But he's great. I mean, it's been many years. <laughs> and see, here's my cat right there. And he Thanks said, for, uh, we're happy that the cat joined us today. Yeah, she's a pretty spiritual girl. Yeah. So, so she goes, what do you want to be in your next lifetime? And I said, you know what? I've been a control freak for so many lifetimes. I, I am sick of it. And she says to Dan, and what do you want to be in your next lifetime? And he said, I've been a victim in so many lifetimes. I am so tired of it. And she goes, ooh, have I got a lifetime for you too. So one of you is going to be the mother and the other one's going to be the son. And one of you is going to get a disease. The kid's going to get a disease. And guess what, mom? You're not going to get that first disease. So the kid's going to get a second disease. And that is where you will learn. And the two of you will realize that your partners, that your souls have actually made a contract to teach each other and to become more evolved and more open and wiser and more loving and be able to serve uh, gold, to be, to be gold, serve gold and be walking, breathing love. So who wants to be what? Let me just say one thing. The kid is going to have a harder time. Both can have a hard time. The kid's going to have a hard time. And Dan said, I'll be the kid. And then as your angel is kicking you out of the cloud and you're tumbling to earth, she goes, oh, and you're not going to remember any of this. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. I read that. I started sobbing and I went, I don't remember, but my stomach is remembering. Hmm. Just felt right. Yeah. So the whole time that he was sick and sicker and ultimately died when he was 38, I knew that this was the work I came here to do. Mm. And I knew that there were beautiful, powerful moments. It was still hard, but it had meaning. It wasn't, it wasn't random. Right. Well, there was no book for me to read that had any of that in it. And so I wrote my memoir. And I, I have a very big deal agent and I sent it to her. I spent a, about 10 years writing it and it had the whole dance story, but it had all the, my growing up stuff and other things. And she sent it out and I got 17 rejections, but they were all fabulous. I mean, they said, I love this book. It made me laugh. It made me cry. At the end of seven of them, it was almost like they called each other and copied <laughs> Shared the letter. Really? At the end, they said, I just can't see it on my list. So my reaction was, well, what's wrong with their list? I mean, I, I didn't, I, I, it was like, if you loved it, what do you, what? The other thing was, I really wanted the book to come out when I was 80 and I was 78 at the time. So I really thought it'd be so cool to have to be 80 because young, you know, 28 year olds are worried that they haven't done anything yet. It's like, I just want them to know that it just gets better. You're going to be 50 and then you're going to be released from all though. You're not going to worry about your hair anymore. You're not going to worry about your inner thigh. <laughs> Amen. 70 is even better. And then 80, honestly, you're going to fly. 
So I was hoping that, you know, so nobody said yes. And um, I got this phone call from a, a, a woman who said, my favorite book was um, endorsed. Uh, my favorite book was um, credited you with her getting her voice from you, that she took your workshop at Esalen and that she's a writer because of you. And I was wondering if you would like to teach the summer, the Summer Academy of Writing with Mark Allen. I had no idea who Mark Allen was, but I always say yes to everything. And so then she said, Mark Allen published The Power of Now. And I'm like, I guess I'll do it. <laughs> oh, and and, and uh, Deepak Chopra, a couple of books of his, and I, I was ecstatic. So the whole time that we were teaching together, we were Zooming. So I could see that he was laughing when I was funny and that he was listening when I was intent. And then in the chat, people were writing beautiful things. So I kept thinking, this is my guy, this is it. I wanted him. I'd much rather have him do it than Harcourt Grace and Simon and Schuster. This is, it, these are my peeps. This is unbelievable. What a miracle that I get this call. Here is my publisher. Well, the last night it was his turn to lecture. I tuned in late because it's California and I'm a space cadet. I tune in and somebody must've said, well, what do you think of memoir? And this is what I heard. Ah. Oh, I hate memoir. Oh, I was born in New Jersey and my mother did this and my father did. I died. <laughs> I, I couldn't sleep, you know, oh. and I just was heartbroken. And I thought, oh my God, he was my guy. He was my last resort. All right. So let me, let me look at his list. So the next day I looked at his list and everything was how to and self-help. And I went, uh, excuse me, but I teach don't you tell people to write what they know? And that's how this book was born. I said, okay, how to write the memoir. So that's, so a lot of, there are five chapters in there that are from the actual memoir, which you may have noticed, which still sure. hasn't gotten published, but I'm rewriting, I'm rewriting. And you know what? It wasn't good. So those people were right. <laughs> well, you talk about writing in the middle of tragedy as, as you were dealing with all this and, and everything going on with your son. Um, but, but we don't, we should do it now and not put it off, not put the pain off or skip the pain part. Well, both, you've said two really important things. And, and the third one is should, um, Ram Dass said, don't should on yourself. So we can't should, I shouldn't write immediately. But I think that if you're in the middle of tough stuff, just jot stuff down because there's an immediacy that you may not get back to when you go to write in retrospect. So yeah. you don't have to write the whole thing, but just how are you feeling now? What's going on now? In terms of skipping the pain part, I used to start the workshop saying we're alchemists. We turn shit into gold. We take what happened to us. We can dance it. We can sculpt it. We can watercolor it. You know, in here, we're going to write it. But the most important part of the equation is first, you have to feel it. You cannot skip the sorrow part. And, you know, culturally, we live in a, in a, in a culture that's terrified of sorrow. you got a pain, we got a pill for you. We don't Absolutely, want yeah, yeah. So then, lo and behold, the teacher's son dies. And uh, a friend of mine offered me, I woke up the morning after he died and I had a backache. So immediately I'm making jokes saying, Dan's got my back. And that's not funny. And I was jesting. And then someone offered me a, a drumming workshop in Florida as a gift to heal. So I flew down to Florida right really shortly after he died. 
and the airplane did my back in. And then I sat on a Zafu on a meditation pillow in a stupid position drumming. So when I came home, I was on the ground. My back was frozen, horrible pain. And I'm lying there and I'm lying there and I'm lying there. And it's probably, you know, very, I, I did chiropractic. I did acupuncture. I read a book on anger in the back. I took Advil. I did everything and my back was seized. I did the Alexander technique. I put books under my head. I did everything. Everybody had a suggestion. I did everything. And one day after about, I would say two weeks of lying there, I heard myself. We're alchemists. We turn shit into gold. But the most important part of the equation is first you have to feel it. And I was like, oh, the teacher has to feel it? <laughs> laughing like a hysterical broken person. And then I started sobbing and sobbing and wailing and sobbing. And I got up off the floor the next day and my back ache was gone. And I, I've always known that anyway, because I've had a couple of other experiences with sorrow in my body. And when I, you know, it's so hard. You just, you know, it's so, it's so, who wants to sign up for, I'm going to be sobbing for the next month. So it's very easy to distract yourself. And I think writing is a phenomenal way to get back into that feeling. And a lot of people say, I'm afraid I'll start, if once I start crying, I'll never stop. The fact is you will stop. And, you know, I, I once volunteered at an elementary school and these kids were like sixth grade, they were so adorable. And, and I, I do exactly what the kids in the workshop as I do with the grownups. I said to them, you know, you're going to reach seventh grade and eighth grade and then you're going to be cool. And I'm begging you to stay in your hearts and to feel stuff that goes on. And as long as you feel, you will be a fully human being. You will be a, you'll have a great marriage. You'll have great kids. You'll have best friends, but it's very easy to shut down and become none when things hurt. So I'm just, I just am encouraging you to cry and to feel and to have a best friend and tell stuff to or somebody you feel safe with and you tell the story and to write the stuff so this this kid he, he wrote a story and his books were all piled up and he read the story and it was about being on the soccer field and there was mud and he slipped and he fell and he hurt his groin he hurt himself and everybody was making fun of him and he wrote this read the story out loud and he started to tear up and he put his head down on his books totally embarrassed and this one girl went Oh, Todd, that was so beautiful. And honestly, he went like this. So he probably learned to cry in front of girls because my son did that. And then another little girl raises her hand and she goes, Mrs. Arany, I, I, I did a, um, a report on tears and there are toxins in tears. So if you cry, um, then you won't be sick. <laughs> so, there you go. There are toxins and tears, so be sure and sob if you can. Don't forget to sob. After Dan passed, what did you discover from your writing during that period? Were there certain aha moments that you didn't realize at the time that you, you got? Yes, yes. I found out that it was a lot of more fun than it, it wasn't just a tragedy. I mean, there were there were moments where we were hysterical. He, he uh, I started filming him. I mean, at some point, I, I kind of saw the journey. I saw we were going down. This was not, I mean, I was trying every single goji berry and rolfing and everything else you could possibly do. 
and I, I saw that he was, MS just wasn't, he had progressive, it wasn't gonna get better. And he had been an acting major at Bard College in Annandale in New York. And I, I said, do you wanna film this? That way, instead of being mother and son, we can be actor and director and we can track this fucking disease. What do you think? And he said, yes. So I said, can I film everything? Or, I mean, if you want me to turn the camera off, tell me and I'll turn the camera off. He said, no, I want you to film everything. Well, we had hired um, an acupuncturist named Harry Beach. He lives on the island. He would roller skate over to Dan's house with the needles in his backpack. He was fabulous. Dan loved him. Acupuncture was actually a very good thing for him. Mm -hmm. And then we hired a guy from Boston who used to come over for two nights and sleep at Dan's. And he was a polarity therapist, Tom. He was just fabulous. And when Dan couldn't pee anymore, which happened, we had to catheterize him. And I got down to the house one day and... Uh, Harry was leaving and Tom had just gotten there and I opened the door and my husband's on the floor with a big Pepsi bottle and he's catheterizing Dan and I went oh my god Tom Dick and Harry oh, <laughs> I got my first laugh out of my kid it's a first time so I had a lot of funny moments that were just where we were all hysterical in the middle of are we really laughing at this yeah was there was a point at which uh, I was at the end of his bed and I said, I was leaving and I said, good night, O King of Kings. And I bowed. I said, good night, O Lord of Lords. And I bowed. And he said, good night, O Fruit of Loops. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so when I, you know, when I started writing how hard and my heartbreaking and all of the horrible things, and there were many, I, I, I made myself now, wait a second. It couldn't have been all bad. And I remembered so many gorgeous moments. And that's, you know, that's the writing forced me to say this was, this was, there were beautiful moments in this. You know, we had, we had to, uh, he, I, I told you he couldn't pee anymore. We had to shower him. And uh, pretty soon he couldn't poop anymore either. And I had a shower chair where we plopped him in and had a big hole. And all three of us would get nude. My husband saws all the bathtub so we could roll the wheelchair in there. I would get, I put a towel down and get on all fours. It's gonna be a little graphic. It could be my son would, my other son would say, this is TMI. And I would, the water would be coming down, we're washing him, we're washing his body, we're washing his hair. And I would put my finger up his butt. And my husband would say, I know you're up there, Cheney. I know you're up there, Rummy. And Dan would laugh and the duty would come out. And on the way home, we would say to each other, excuse me, but were we just laughing at a tragedy? And it was genuine laughter. All three of us would be laughing. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Oh, no. It really speaks to the power of, of levity and lightness. And when that's, when that's needed amidst, I, I, I feel so Taoist, you know, and amidst the sorrow that there need to be those moments of lapse. There, there's something in your book that really, really touched me when you talked about uncertainty and the power of how writing can help in those places where, you know, we don't know what to do, or we don't know what we feel, or we, we don't know, you know, what's going on. And I feel like that's really timely for what we're all kind oh, of living in right God, now. Like, yes. are we not living in, you know, hashtag uncertainty for three years? You always yeah. are anyway. But it's been heightened and it, it causes tremendous fear. But if you intellectualize and you say, fear doesn't serve anything. I don't notice that it's helped anything. Um, what can I do with uncertainty? Can I just 
really learned to live in the moment. I mean, I was trying to be here now ever since I read Ram Dass. Be here now. <laughs> and it turns out it's the hardest thing in the entire world. Your mind is constantly thinking of what you should have said, what you're going to do. So his illness, number one, did bring me into the present moment. It was very hard to be thinking forward when you're having all of this immediate. But the mm -hmm. uncertainty, I mean, magic happens in the uncertainty too. And if you could just have this, you know, the word faith, I grew up and all I ever heard the word faith was with my Catholic friends. And I just never realized that faith and also God, I mean, we didn't even talk about that as a Jewish human. You know, I just, it, it, it wasn't spiritual until I became a Buju, until I got into the Eastern stuff. I, I learned Hebrew by rote. I did my bat mitzvah. I did everything, but my heart never opened. I loved the velvet seats. I loved the music. But until I heard Jack Kornfield, until I heard, you know, spiritual teachers talk, tell stories and talk about what we're doing here. So uncertainty is trusting that there's something larger and everything that happens to you is part of the journey you signed up for. Ram Dass, one of his stories that I totally loved, he had a disembodied friend. Now, how often do you get to say disembodied friend normally and not have to like twitch? Right, right. Emmanuel, did you ever hear of the Emmanuel books? I have. Well, fabulous, with little tiny line drawings. Well, he said to Emmanuel once, Emmanuel, I'm trying to eat moderately. I'm trying to meditate every day. I'm trying to think before I speak. I'm trying to stay in my heart. Why does shit still happen to me? And Emmanuel said, Ramdas, you're at the University of Life. Take the curriculum. Do you love that or what? For me, it was like, first of all, it stops you judging other people because you know they're taking a different course of study. All of a sudden, it's like anybody you were going to call an asshole, yeah, you can still do that, but you know what? You don't know what they came here to do. And as soon as you know that you're at the University of Life, it's like whatever's happening to you is your teaching. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life, but it's there's a reason, there's a reason. This is not random. You're not a victim. You're in school and you're learning to be a whole larger, incredible, maybe angel even. When you experience um, the idea of writing this memoir, what, who are you writing it for? Is it for yourself? Are you thinking about a publisher? Are you, is it, is it just something what, what's your what's your as a as an average writer what's your what's your thought about that well i for for people other than me i think you should just write and if you start thinking about what they're going to think then you're going to censor yourself oh my god they're going to think i'm weird you can't do that you just write and then when you're done with your first couple of drafts and you read it over and you want it to go somewhere then you start to look at it like, well, what's in here that's frivolous and that I said six times that I can, I only have to say once, you know, then you do the work. But when you first writing and when I was first writing, because I've taught memoir, I mean, you don't really teach memoir, but I make it safe for people to start theirs. Then it's all a beginning process. It's just process. And you just write and write and write and write. And then you read it. And, and for me, the hardest part was assembling order and trying to have some balance so that you're laughing and then I can go deep for a while and you can like wince and I don't want you to wince so much that you won't be able to sleep and uh and I'm pushing you over the edge with all of my sadness but I think when 
when I tell people in the workshop, don't, don't think about an audience, don't think about a publisher. When you want one and you've done some drafts and you have some help, you can start visualizing your book signing at Barnes and Noble. You can sit at the table in your mind and you can start signing and saying, so why do you, what, what's your name again? And you can have so much fun with the fantasy of it. But when you're writing in the very beginning, just get the words out of your body. Just get the stories out. And you mentioned visualizing, and this is something that you've you've done. What do you? What does that mean to you? Visualizing. Well, <laughs> I never heard that there was such a thing. But my husband and I had a business. Is that in the book? The business, the visualization. It is. Okay. Yeah, it is. Remember, but we had a business for twenty years, and it was loose sight. And he had he had been an uh, an engineer, a nuclear engineer at a big place. And when we were first married, I called him on the phone and I said, "Well, Ernie, please." And they said, who? And he came home from work. I said, you work at a place where they don't know who you are? It doesn't bother you? He said, no, there's a thousand engineers there. And then he said he was working with this beautiful material. It was Lucite. Long story short, he started a hobby. It turned into a lucrative hobby. And we both quit our jobs. And we started hiring people. And we made <clears throat> plexiglass Parsons tables and pedestals and and nobody was doing that. And so we were first and we got Bloomingdale's. I mean, we would go around the country and we would go into these little stores and beautiful little gift stores. And in fact, there was an article in the New York Times. It said, it said, she talks, he carries. So he would carry the stuff in and then I would talk to the fire. And we did, we did fabulously. And we ended up with a factory. We ended up with 125 people working. And then uh, everybody copied us and they went to China. Mm -hmm. And then it was an oil-based product and the oil crisis happened. <clears throat> so our sheet stock, the price went way, way up. And then crack cocaine came into the neighborhood and we lost a lot of people, beautiful people to, to addiction and death actually. So the business started to plummet and um, we made money for eight years, which was, oh my God, did I like being rich? It was fabulous. Just everybody recommended to everybody. <laughs> you can buy cashmere, you can get hardback books, you can go out to dinner, you can take people out to dinner. It was great. And then the next 12 years, we really, really, really struggled. And it was very, very hard, but I grew up with no money. So I said, I can do this. I know how to do this. So at the very end, when I finally brought all of our books to a bankruptcy lawyer and I made Joel come with me and the bankruptcy lawyer said you have some meat on the bones you don't have to go bankrupt but you're going to do a workout don't pay any more bills collect all your receivables we can do this well my husband is the most ethical honest beautiful human being he paid everyone right down to Poland Springs uh $27.97 unbelievable so at night I I started to say to him Here, here's what we have to do I want you to visualize an oval oak table with a bottle of champagne and two lawyers because we're going to have a closing because we're going to sell the business. And he's going, Nance, not selling the business. We lost $75,000, two quarters in a row. We are not selling the business. I said, it is an oval oak table. There is a lawyer. There's our lawyer. There's, there, there's a bottle of champagne. I mean, just made him do it. I made him do it every night. And we sold the business. It was a rectangular oak table. So I messed up a little bit. I didn't get my oval, but I brought the champagne and we sold the business. We didn't make any money, but they bought our inventory. They bought the rest of the debt and we were free. And um, 
Well, talk about uncertainty. My my husband kept saying, where did I go wrong? How did it, we took a walk in the reservoir at the end and every, you know, half a mile, he would say, I can't believe I did this. Now the kids need money for college. Where did we go wrong? Why did I, how could I have done this to you? And I, I grabbed his lapel like that, his, his uh, shirt. And I said, do you have cancer? No. Do I have cancer? No. I don't even want to hear anything about it. We were rich. It was a fabulous experience. And now we have nothing and don't worry about it because nothing, I know how to make soup. So I don't even want to hear another word. And then we'd walk and he'd say, thank you, babe. You're unbelievable. You're unbelievable. I love you, babe. And then another half a mile and he'd go, I should have had computers. I should have, I should have gotten a guy to manage us. I can't believe I did this to you. I said, do you have cancer? No. Do I have cancer? No. And I went my whole day. And by the end of the walk, he literally said, free at last, free at last, free at last. And then, you know, it took him a year of uncertainty. <laughs> and then now he's an inventor and he's having a ball. He invents with his brother. And we're back to not being rich, but we have no money problems whatsoever. That, that could be TMI too, but you were going to ask, so how are you doing now? Can you eat? So, so do you do you still visualize? Um, I did visualize this this book that came into being, actually. Wonderful. I did. I, did. I really wanted it. I mean, I, 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 the other book was 20 years ago. And um, and I, this is the reason, this is just very weird and I'm whispering it like nobody's ever gonna hear this, but I don't like going anywhere anymore. And so if I have a book, people, more people will come to the vineyard, to the workshop, and then I don't have to go to Esalen and I don't have to go anywhere. I don't wanna go anywhere. I'm so happy here, schlepping on airplanes now. Uh, 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 uh. So I said, I need to have a book because it's credibility and then more people will come and then I never have to leave my home. So that's <laughs> so I started visualizing the book. Oh, I guess that manifested too. It did. Yeah. So I want to ask about one of those nudgy things that some of us writers experience called procrastination. Mm -hmm. And you have a chapter in the book that says, if your house is clean, <laughs> you're not writing, which yeah. I, I was telling Jim, I'm now using an excuse with my husband. Of course, you know, of course the house is not clean. I'm a writer. But can you talk a little bit about, I, I often find it's like, it's like getting into a cold pool. Like once I get into the pool, I'm fine. And then I swim and swim and swim and swim. You just but that's sometimes sitting down to writing. Yeah. You just completely elaborated exactly what I would say. It's a, for, for most of us, getting to it is the hardest part. Once you do it, you're so happy you did it afterwards. You're so happy while you're doing it. But it's, you can distract yourself a million ways. I have to move that vase. It's just not in the right place. Oh, and now that flower's dead. I better go out and pick another flower. Oh, you know what? I got a thorn from the rose. I better get, should I get a bit? You know, I better go to the store and get the Band-Aid. There are a million ways that you cannot write. And it, it's very weird that you would keep yourself from doing something that nourishes you so much. And that yeah. what you do, it makes you so happy. But it's... I mean, I, I'm not really a procrastinator. My husband's a procrastinator. I'm pretty good about, you, you, you know, do this. I have to do this because I, I don't like having the stuff hanging. But many people, you know, I can, I'll do tomorrow what I can do today. No, I'll do it today what I can do. Whatever that expression is, <laughs> I'm not doing it. <laughs> so that's it. It's, you know, it's, I think, discipline. I might have had this in the book too because my friend, who learned Latin said that this, the uh, root word of discipline is disciple. 
And that changes everything for me. Words are amazing. But do you want to be the disciple of your own soul? I'll write, I'll draw, I'll do whatever. Disciple is so much more powerful than discipline. I have to do sit-ups. I have to like not have the whipped cream. That's discipline. But disciple makes you have this high goal of being, of honoring yourself, I think. Don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Disciple. Love it. You mentioned about the importance of words and, you know, in memoir, but also you talk about a story about a scarf in the book. Oh. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Oh my God. Well, I, you know, I noticed that people, especially in New England, maybe it doesn't happen where you guys are, but people are just withholding. And often at the end of the workshop, I say, I don't teach writing, I teach gushing. I just think people just think a great thought, but they don't express it. I was in a, um, I was in a swim club and, uh, and a nude and dripping and two other nude dripping women don't know them. And I overhear, cause I love eavesdropping. One woman says to the other woman, oh my God, was Mary Jane's cream and mushroom soup unbelievable last night. And I don't know why I thought I was with them, but I said, well, did you tell Mary Jane? <laughs> and they looked at me like, you're not, you're not with us. And, uh, and I just said, you know, that, and, and the other one said, oh, she knows she's a good cook. And see, that's the problem. She knows she's a good cook. Nobody knows anything. Tell them you're in line at the bank. Tell the woman her hair is unbelievably gorgeous. So I'm good at that because I know what it feels like when someone says something to me that makes me feel great. So we showed Dan's film. We did ultimately make the film, a documentary, and we showed it up here in my Martha's Vineyard in the community center in Chilmore. And everybody was around us afterwards and everybody's congratulating us. And I see this woman, sort of young woman, sort of trying to edge her way into the crowd. And she's, she's holding a velvet uh, amber. Amber's like my, I don't know, that to me sings that color, amber, orangey, yellow, sort of around her neck and she's holding it and she breaks through the crowd, not breaks through, but eases her way into the crowd. And she says, you won't remember me, but several years ago, I had closed my bank account. I had paid my last month's rent. I had written my suicide note and you stopped me on Main Street in Vineyard Haven. And you said, oh my God, maybe it's the scarf, but I think it's your energy. You are lighting up the whole sidewalk. I don't know who you are, but what a spirit you've got. And she said, you saved my life. And I want you to have this scarf. And she wow. this scarf. You don't even know. I never knew that I even said that. And, and I just feel like people are one compliment away from jumping off a bridge. Why not give it to them? When you have that power, you don't have to write a check. You just have to say you look great in purple. And my husband wore that scarf till it was shreds just like a blankie, but what a gift she gave me. So that's one of my things is don't, don't withhold. If you have a thought, you look great, or this poem you sent me, did you write that? Unbelievable. You know, exclamation points, come on. The power of yeah. words, the power yeah. of words. Yeah. Really? yeah, and what we're writing about, there, there's one chapter where you talk about don't shy away from taboo topics. Oh, yes. And the prompt in there 
for folks who want to try this, I mean, there's so many wonderful prompts in this book. Each chapter has a prompt that then you can do something if, if let, let's say if you're cleaning your house and you should be writing. Uh, <laughs> but there's one here that says, is there someone you're concerned about knowing your business? Write them a short letter, tell them as much or as little as you want. Can you talk about how you came up with that prompt? No, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I think I'm lucky about, no, luck isn't. I, you know, one of the things I do say is that we're conduits. And if you can just trust and get out of your own way and not think you're doing it. You have a partner. I, I am into God and, I, and the word God is just very, very strange. So it's not, you know, I don't know how else to express it, but I know there's something huge and and love love i'm into love and i, I just feel like you're you have a partner and you, you know you made it do it's like i i went for a job interview and they said um so it's going to be very hard because we're really just asking you to love everybody and that's probably going to be very difficult but in return you know we're going to give you some good health we're going to give you huge amounts of joy ecstasy you'll have some shit happen too but um, do you still want the job? Because you're going to have some very tough stuff. Yes, I want the job. So now you're a love bug. You've just taken the job of being unconditionally love bug. You're going to go around the world and you're just going to constantly love no matter what, even if you don't like the person, you're going to get out of the way and you're going to make sure you're going to be nice, not phony nice. You're going to go into your heart and say, there's a five-year-old in there and I'm going to love that five-year-old. So I thought, Sarah, this is where you were going, but Dan had open heart surgery this is a taboo subject. So maybe, maybe you were going to ask this. Um, and he always had a girlfriend because he was gorgeous. And I don't know why women like angry men, but he was an angry, gorgeous, funny, charming, sweetheart, but angry. So lovely Sarah, just beautiful and smart and loved him. And he loved her. And it's right after her open hearts. He's getting home from Mass General and I'm filming. And she is putting him lifting him out of the wheelchair onto the bed. And she goes, oh my God, oh my God, the urine bag, it's stuck in the wheelchair. And then she's so strong that she's able to kind of hold him like that and flip the urine bag onto the bed. A cup, I filmed the whole thing. A couple of weeks later, I get a call from Hartford, Connecticut, where I'm from, from a gallery owner, he's a friend. And he says, Nance, you know, you moved to the vineyard, you abandoned us. We want you to come back. We want you to get on the stage. We want you to tell your funny stories. And I said, I have no funny stories. I'm sobbing all the time. My child is sick. And he apparently didn't hear me. <laughs> he said, so bring some of your people. And all of a sudden I thought, wait a minute. I've got 50 hours already. I could bring Dan in the wheelchair. I could get somebody to give me like 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Doesn't have to have continuity. It can just be and he'll get a standing ovation because it's our town. And he'll see that what he's doing is not for naught. So I said, let me call you back. So there had been a gal in my workshop that week who had graduated from film school. And I called her and I said, um, if I gave you a whole bunch of tapes, would you give me 15 minutes? Doesn't have to have any order. You have to edit anything. I just, she did it and she had cut, oh my God, the urine bag. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Why do you think she cut, oh my God, the urine bag part? It was uncomfortable. She, Thank you. Yeah. So the urine bag is the story. The urine bag is the story. You cut the urine bag and you have a generic piece of a person putting a person on a bed that was sick. 
So that's one of the stories I tell in the workshop. It's like, do not protect us from the urine bag. Now, do you want the urine bag to be the first sentence in the piece? Maybe not. Maybe you have to tuck it somewhere, but don't, don't worry so much about us. Just tell the story, read it. Somebody else will read it and tell you, you know, is there another way of saying that? Um, but the urine bag is the story. It's the most powerful part and you just don't want to take the power away. So was that a taboo thing you were going to ask, Sarah? I, I think you went right where I was headed. Yeah, there's, <laughs> you know, there's so many different things that, you know, we can self-censor ourselves about. And, yeah. and I think that the, the realness and the sharing the thing that is, I'm a 12-stepper, you know, so it comes from that kind of perspective of sharing the thing that we want to not share is, is that opportunity for healing and that opportunity for someone else to also say, I can share my, you know, deep, dark, dirty things it's that I don't think that I should bring out. Yeah. Exactly. It's, you're just doing, so, you know, when I start the workshop, I tell a lot of my stories and I think it's really important. The vulnerability to me is the most important part of the writing. Let me feel, let me feel. And then the other thing is I want, I want to read your piece and go, oh my God, you're me. Your details are different, but we're exactly the same because we all are exactly the same. All we all want is to be listened to. All we all want is to be held. All we all want is to be heard, to be, to be loved. That's all. It's universal. Anyway, I'm lecturing. <laughs> well, as we wrap things up, um, I wondered if, there, if there's one piece of advice you would give our, our listeners, just one final piece about writing a memoir, what, what might that be? Well, that's a good one. Um, well, take the chance of sounding like you. Don't, don't, don't worry about being intelligent and using big words and trying to impress the teacher and get an A. Just sound like you. Use your, use your language. You're, 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 you're brilliant when you're talking to your best friend on the phone. There's nothing you leave out. You have every detail. Oh, my God, you can't believe it. I was sitting at the, at the light uh, on uh, Mountain Avenue and Albany Avenue, and I've got James Taylor cranked, and I've, I didn't take off the eye makeup. I've been sobbing all night. And I look over and he's in the Jeep Wrangler right next to me. And, and, and it's, he's wearing the sheepskin jacket I gave him. Are you fucking kidding me? You are brilliant when you are talking to your best friend. And all of a sudden you go to write and, and all of a sudden, what do you have to sound like a writer? You have to use writer words? Having sat in my automobile. No, car, stop it. So, so I would say, please try to take the chance of sounding like you because you are clear and you have a story to tell. Thank you so much, Nancy. It's been so wonderful to have you on Big Universe. Oh, I've loved it. You guys, ooh, fast. You're very, very good at this. Thank <laughs> you. For more information about Nancy Slonum, Erony, Erony, correct? Erony? Wonderfully done. All right. Check out our website at chillmarkwritingworkshop.com, C-H-I-L, markwritingworkshop.com. And pick up her new book, Memoir as Medicine, The Healing Power of Writing Your Messy, Imperfect, Unruly, But Gorgeously Yours Life Story. For more information about Sarah Bowen and to order her new book, Sacred Send-Offs, An Animal Chaplain's Advice for Surviving Animal Loss, Making Life Meaningful, and Healing the Planets, go to sacredsendoffs.com. You can find out more about me on my website called youthrivehere.com. Thanks, everybody. I'm Jim Lefter with Sarah Bowen. We'll talk with you next time on Big Universe. 
I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.